right, so do you have somebody in your life or have you run into somebody that you think when you meet them, this person has got a lot going on? They've got a lot of potential. They've got a lot of skill. Maybe they have a degree, a pedigree, whatever. They've got everything that it's going to take for them to be successful, or at least you think so. Maybe you're in uh, HR and you're interviewing this person for your company. And when you interview them, you think this person is going to just take our company by storm. They're going to go up through the ranks. Someday they're going to be running the company because you just have this sense that they have this immense potential. And so you hire them and you put them to work. But then a few days later, you start to hear reports that they don't just have potential and they don't just have the degree and they don't just have all the wonderful talents that you recognize when you interviewed them. They also have some volatility. Like their boat's a little rockable and your staff is beginning to find it out. And it begins to create a problem. I mean, you saw, when, when, when you interviewed this person, you sat across from them, it was almost like you could visualize their destiny. It's like, man, they're going to do great things. They're going to go great places. But then once they actually have been to work a little while, then you realize their destiny, at least the one that you had pictured, isn't going to happen. Maybe, maybe they're an argumentative sort, right? So we know what this is like. You work with somebody who's super creative, who's super talented, and yet they cannot allow someone else in the room to have a different opinion as theirs. So when somebody voices something and they don't agree with it, volatility, bam, there's a big problem. Or, or, or maybe it's not such a big deal. Maybe it's that the person's wishy-washy. Have you met one of these, right? So today it's this job, tomorrow it's that job. Today it's this degree plan, tomorrow it's that degree plan. And when you talk to them, you think, wow, what potential, what capabilities. This person ought to be able to go and do amazing things if they would just put their eggs in one basket, if they would decide what it is that they want to do. But that's their volatility is they can't decide what they want to do. Or maybe they're polar. Maybe you have somebody like this uh, in, in, in your life, right? So they, when you see them walking down the hall, well, you don't know whether to duck or pucker, you know? <laughs> One day you're the greatest person in the world, the next day you're evil. And you think, you know, I don't know what to do with this person. And, or, or maybe they're paranoid. So you're walking down the hall and you see this person and you say, hey, I heard you did a great job on the Johnson account. What do you mean by that? Well, I meant you did a great job. What did you hear? I didn't hear anything. I heard you did a great job. Am I getting fired? Are you trying to take my job? Right? And you think, oh my goodness, this person is so skilled, so talented, but they're constantly scared of what's hiding around the next corner. They're constantly paranoid. And it's, or, 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 or maybe they're just reactive. And so little tiny things set them off. And you think to yourself, why would this person give away their destiny because of this volatility. It makes no sense. Their R factor is through the roof, and it's like that's costing them so much. And you know when you spend time with them, you're like, this person just doesn't think right. They've got all, they've got all these wonderful things they could bank on, but their thinking is messed up. And so here's what, what I wanted to do in this talk. This is going to be different than the last two talks. It's going to be different than, than the next talk because this is going to be really just a workshop, and I hope you'll give me the freedom to do this. I just wanted to ask the question because I've been around a lot of people like this, over the years, I wanted to ask, why do people trade away their destiny for volatility? And, and if we could understand why a person would do that or how it happens, maybe we could reverse engineer it so that we wouldn't have that same kind of volatility in our lives and we could achieve our full potential. Here's the deal. Whatever that person has that I was just talking about, I don't want it to be contagious. I don't want to catch it. Because I don't know how much potential I have, probably not a lot, but whatever I do have, I want to realize 
at all. I, I, I don't want to leave any opportunity on the table. I want, to get, I, I, I want to see my full destiny that God has planned for me for his glory. I want to do the most that I possibly can. So that's what the goal of today is. We're going to talk about how people lose their destiny because of their volatility. And I found, as I studied for this, three mistakes that people make uh, that cause this. If you're a note taker, this is a great week to take notes because I'm going to walk through three mistakes that people make and they build on each other. And in order to talk about this, I've got to take you back to an Old Testament character, very interesting character to study, named Saul. And Saul was the first human king of, of Israel. And I, I need you to give me a little bit of liberty to set this up. So this is a little bit of a history lesson, so hang with me. But when I say he was the first human king of Israel, the reason that I couch it with the word human is because up until then, God had been the king of Israel right? And that was awesome. I would, I would happily, I, I would be all about God replacing our leadership in this country, okay? That would be, that would be pretty cool. But Israel had it. They had it. He was, God was their king. He, 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 he set up the laws. He set up the government. He was the ultimate authority in, in, uh, in Israel. But the problem was people didn't understand what they had going for them. They didn't understand how good it was. And, and, and they were very paranoid. They had a lot of enemies that were trying to come after them. Israel was a small country compared to a lot of her enemies. And so the people of Israel went to the pastor. The pastor's name was Samuel. And they said, Samuel, hey, we got problems like other countries. We got enemies like other countries. We want a king like other countries. Samuel said, we do have a king. We have God. And they said, no, no, no. We want a, we, we want a king with skin on. We, we, want a, we want a personal, physical, real life king that we, can, you know, that we can follow. And more than follow, we want to be able to trot him out in front of our enemies and go, here's our king. We're a little embarrassed, Samuel. See, because the other people, they can trot out their king in front of us and then we got nothing. We're like, our king is up there somewhere. He gives us instructions and we go follow. But we want somebody that we can put a crown on and we can have a sort of imposing figure that we can trot out in front of our enemies and point to and say, that's our king. Eventually, and this was a, a huge offense to God, but eventually God gives the people what they want. God will eventually step back. When people say, we don't want you, God will eventually step back. It's a scary thing when it happens, but it will happen. And so God provides a human king for Israel in the person of Saul. This is like winning the lottery. There was no human king up until now. All of a sudden, Samuel, the pastor, shows up on Saul's doorstep at his house. Not exactly, but just to, to simplify the story. Saul show, Samuel shows up and says, hey, you're the king, right? You're the new king. So that's pretty cool. There was no king before. All of a sudden, you are the king. I mean, he was from a well-to-do family, but his social standing wasn't very high up the ladder. So it's pretty cool. He just like leapfrogged everybody. Now he's the most important man around. But Saul has a couple problems, right, as a, as a new king. First off, he has to prove himself. When you're the very first king and nobody's come before you, you've got a lot of ground to make up and you've got a lot to prove. Second of all, Israel was in, locked in this fierce battle with another people group called the Philistines. And the Philistines' military forces outnumbered Israel's military forces massively. And so they've been in this battle, they've been locking horns, and now, the, now it's Saul's headache. Saul's got to figure out what to do about it. And so in, in his first initial time as, as king, they fought a couple of little skirmishes with the, with the Philistines. Pastor Samuel comes to Saul and says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to Gilgal, and I want you to wait for me for seven days. I'm going to come after those seven days, and I'm going to offer sacrifices to the Lord, and I'm going to give you instructions from the Lord for what to do next. What you have to understand is that Gilgal is not far away from Michmash, which is where the Philistines have been setting up a line. This is more than you want to know. But basically what I'm saying is, this is Gilgal is a forward area. Gilgal is not where you want to go just set up your RV and camp out. Because it is a place where the Philistines could show up at any time and take them out. But Samuel said, go wait for seven days. Do, don't do 
anything. Wait for me for seven days, and he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come give the burnt offerings, and then when I do, then I'll give you instructions for what to do next. So Saul gathers his troops, and he goes to Gilgal. But the Philistines are gathering in huge force, and, 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 and they're, sending, they're sending people out to figure out what's happening with the Philistines, and they're finding out that the Philistines way outnumber them. As a matter of fact, the, the account that we have was talking about their, their, their soldiers and animals being like the, the grains of sand on the seashore. They felt like it was, they were massively surrounded, and so Saul's men began to scatter. Here's the thing. It wasn't like an organized military force like what we have now, right? This was more like herding cats, because it was, it, it was just a matter of having, assembling a military force and trying to fight a battle was a matter of sending out messages to families and clans and trying to get everybody to join together and show up at the same time and go against, uh, and go against an enemy. Beyond all of that, so think about this. You've got this sort of ragtag army that Saul has gathered together. It's kind of like their, you know, the, the first big initiative with this new king. But on top of all that, the Bible tells us the Philistines had kept the Israelites from having blacksmiths because the Philistines did not want the Israelites having swords and spears. So basically what you have is a group of Israelite men who have come to fight the Philistines with plows and pickaxes and farm implements. And they're not very confident at this moment. And they, they hear Saul say, well, this is what God has said for us to do. We're going to stay here at Gilgal. We're going to wait seven days. We're going to wait for Samuel to come. And then Samuel's going to offer sacrifices. And, and, and then he's going to tell us what to do next. Meanwhile, these guys are going, you do realize that I'm standing here with a pickaxe. You're telling me to do nothing for a week while we're standing here like sitting ducks. And they won't do it. So they go run and they try to find caves and, and, and rocks they can hide, hide around. And Saul feels exposed. Here he is. Most of his guys have run off. He has a few of his men left. The Bible says they were literally trembling. The, the best translation we have of this is their knees were knocking. They, they, they were very, very scared for seven days. And he's looking at his watch and he's counting it. Six days and 10 hours. Six days and 11 hours. Six days and 12 hours. At seven days, Samuel does not show. And he's got to figure out what to do. And his men are getting antsy. And they're coming up to him and they're going, hey, didn't you say after seven days Samuel's going to show up? He was going to offer. Here's the deal, Saul. Before we had you, this was the same problem that we had. We had to wait for God. God would say he was going to give us instructions and we'd stand around and we'd wait. And eventually God would give us instructions, but it was never immediate. Saul, we, we hired you as king because we wanted some immediate action. We wanted some instruction. We wanted some movement. We wanted, we wanted something to happen. And now you're doing the same thing that we had to do before. It's not fair. And so he's getting pressure, and he's getting pressure, and he's getting reports that the Philistines are, are lining up, and they're getting ready to come after him. So finally he says, I tell you what, bring me the, bring me the burnt offerings, bring me the sacrifices. I've seen it done a million times. I'll just do it myself. He says, oh, you know, how hard can it be, right? I mean, obviously, normally it's the priest, normally it's the prophet, whatever. I'm going to do it this time, all right? Bring me the burnt offerings, and I'll, I'll do it. That way, you know, God, if God has something to say to me, God can say it, and then we can go do it. We can go take care of business. We'll go do what we need to do. So they bring the burnt offerings, and, 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 and he sacrifices. And then the Bible says that Samuel shows up. And he shows up, and Samuel starts. He smells. He can tell the burnt offering has been sacrificed ahead of time. But Saul, you know, he, he, wants, to, he, he wants to try to kind of smooth it over a little bit. So, so Saul comes out to Pastor Samuel with big old arms open wide. Hey, Samuel, buddy, I was worried about you. You know, you said you were going to be here, and then you didn't show up. And I thought, man, maybe something happened to you on the freeway. And I was really concerned. And then so, you know, because, and then I, I, I you know, I kind of got started without you, you know. Because the Bible says, Samuel said, what have you done? 
And Saul replied, well, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us here at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. It is tough to get fired at your 90-day review. (laughs) For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul's decision to sacrifice the burnt offerings instead of waiting for Samuel, it cost him his dynasty. It cost him his future. It cost him his destiny. Just like I said, when a a person who has a lot of potential has a lot of volatility in their life, they can end up giving away their destiny. And it's so sad. And I I look at that and I think, we've got to learn something here. Surely we can learn something from this person who does this. And and it's not just Saul. I mean, think about it. How many people have we known in life who've done this? I mean, there's something, we've got to be able to learn something from this so we can reverse engineer it and be successful in our life and actually fulfill our destiny. And that's why I came up with these three things. I looked at Saul. By the way, it was tough for me to pick one story because Saul does this over and over and over again. It's like, it's, it's just like he shoots himself in the foot and then he shoots himself in the foot over and over again. He keeps ruining things for himself. I picked the first story and what I think may be the most important. But if you're interested in this, and, and, and uh, you, when you get home, you can open your Bible and read the life of Saul and you'll see that these three things that I'm getting ready to walk you through is what he did over and over and over again. And so you'll see there's consistency there. But here's the first thing. The first thing that Saul did that got him into trouble was he left his heart unguarded. He left his heart unguarded. Check out this verse in uh, chapter 13 and verse 11. Saul said, or Saul replied, I saw, that's an important word, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So what, what, what Saul is telling us here is what he's paying attention to. He said, I was paying attention to the fact, first of all, the Philistines were coming to get us. I was paying attention to the fact that you didn't show up when you were supposed to. And I was also paying attention to the fact that my guys were very upset and they were scattering and they, you know, they had some, some real concerns about my leadership, which I did not want to, to let them continue to feel. Right? So this is what he was paying attention to. And it might seem like a small thing, but I, I just want you to know what you pay attention to matters. And I'm, I want to I want to get to that in just a second, but let me, let me take a real quick side, side track. Samuel told Saul to wait for seven days. If you're a leader in this room, my hunch is there's been a time in which God has called you to a season of waiting, and that is tough. I, if patience is a virtue, I'm running in short supply. I don't, I don't have patience. But God will often call you to a season of waiting for the purpose of clarifying your focus. God will often call you to a a time where where there's a season where nothing big is happening because he wants to know, what are you going to pay attention to? What are you going to focus on? Well, why would God care? Why would God care where our focus is? Because of this. And if you're taking notes, this is a key concept to get. What has your attention has you. Whatever has your attention has you. It owns you. It absorbs you. You say, well, Jonathan, how, how, could you, how could you make such a sweeping statement? That sounds like hyperbole. Well, let's think about it here for a second. Isn't it true that whatever has your attention becomes the most important reality to you in that moment? I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I was headed to Chick-fil-A to have lunch because I like Chick-fil-A. And as I was headed there, there was an F-350 in front of me. Now, I was in the left lane. The F-350 was in the, was in the, the right lane. 
and uh, there was no divider in the section of road I was driving in um, between my lane and the oncoming traffic. This F-350 is just ahead of me, but I'm not concerned about following distance because he's in the other lane, except he begins to drift over into my lane, and he get clo gets closer and closer and closer, and I keep thinking, ah, he's going to correct, he's going to correct, he's going to correct, and then it becomes obvious he's not going to correct, so I kind of slow down and let this person, I think maybe he's just trying to change lanes. But then I notice he begins to go on into in oncoming traffic, and so I, I honk my horn, which I, I, it takes a lot to get me to honk my horn. But I honk my horn, and all of a sudden I see this person's head jerk up, and he jerks the steering wheel back, and he goes all the way across my lane and back into his original lane. And I think, what is the matter? This poor guy's got, having a heart attack. Something's terrible happening to him, and I'm, be, I'm really worried. I pull up alongside. I'm kind of looking in the window, and he's sitting there with his phone doing this. Right? I have no idea how he was steering. I'm sure he was steering with his knee or something. But, um, so I don't like that so much. Right? I don't like it when I see people driving on the road with me and they're texting on their phones. Do you know why I don't like it? Because whatever has your attention becomes the most important reality in the moment. And other realities begin to fade away. And if it's not the most important thing, it becomes risky. So that's why I don't like that guy being on his, uh, texting on his phone. Because it's not the most important thing. When you're behind the wheel of an automobile, the fact that you are controlling tons of rolling steel and metal and plastic, that's the most important thing. And that's what I would like that person to understand. It's the most important thing when you're behind the wheel of a car. But he's missing out on that reality because in the moment something else has his attention, it becomes risky. I mean, even something simple can become risky, like walking. I was at a restaurant a couple of months ago, and I watched a lady walk into a wall while she was texting. No joke. I'm thinking, okay, I know this is very elementary. Walking is more important than texting, okay? So, you know, I'm thinking, oh, it's a good thing there was no cliff for her to walk off of. But, um, but seriously, what, what has our attention has us because it becomes the most important reality in the moment. And it doesn't have to be a smartphone uh, for, for that to be the case. It can also be a stressor, right? So guys, you come home and you have your normal conversation with your wife about how your day went. She asks you, how did your day go? And you say, well, it went fine. And that's all you have to say, right? Because it did. It was fine. And then you ask her how her day goes and she shares in a little different form with you. Because guys are like CDs, right? We can skip to the salient track, and, and that's all we need. Ladies are like cassette tapes. It happens in real time, right? So, so when she tells you her day, she gives it to you in chronological order, and she's going to give you the emotion that goes along with what happened during the day, and she may even give you some meta-emotion. She may tell you about how she feels about telling you how she felt when it happened during the day, right? And you're, standing, you're sitting there and you're giving her the obligatory uh-huhs and mm-hmms and you're acting like you're paying attention. But there is a stress from work that has your attention and so it has you. Or there is something on the television that has your attention and so it has you. Or there is something on your smartphone that has your attention and so it has you. And she says to you, what did I just say? And you think, uh-oh. Of course, God gave you something gracious. You know, every once in a while, God gives us a concession. And God, God gave us a concession called the phonological loop. It means that you can repeat the last seven seconds of what somebody told you, even if you weren't listening. But if she asks you for seven seconds before that, you're in big trouble, right? But it's true. What has our attention has us because it becomes the most important reality. And if it isn't, or shouldn't be the most important thing in our world, it's risky. That's why Saul got in trouble. 
See, God had him in a season of waiting so that he would pay attention to him. It was so important. That's why the sacrifice was so important. See, God's people wanted to turn God's help on and off like a faucet. That's what they wanted. And so they wanted to be able to, 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 to do things on their terms and not on God's terms. And God wanted to know, was his people, now that he had given them a king, were they now ready to do things on his terms? And more than that, he wanted to know from Saul, now that he's placed Saul in this position of leadership, he wants to know, does Saul understand that God is still the boss? Because if Saul can obey what God tells him to do, then they can still have victory. And the fact that they had to have a king becomes kind of irrelevant because they're still following what God has asked them to do. But if the king decides, hey, I'm, I'm in charge and I can do things the way that I want to, and even if God gives him an instruction, he can just go off and, and do his own thing, then at that moment, then God's people are in rebellion to him and God can't bless them. So this was a very important waiting period. And so what God needed Saul to focus on was God. He needed there to be a connection. God was going to take care of the Philistines, but God was concerned that there was a, 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 re, a time of repairing the, the, this broken connection between him and his people. Unfortunately, Saul didn't understand that was the most important thing. And like the person texting while he was driving, he got focused on the Philistines and how many people they had, and he got focused on his guys running into the caves, and he got focused on the fact that Samuel wasn't there, and he made a big mistake, and it cost him big time. So it becomes the most important reality. But then the Bible says it makes a transition. Because if something becomes the most important reality in your life consistently, so if something over and over and over and over and over and over becomes the most important reality in your life, it will then become your identity. And the scriptures tell us this in Proverbs uh, chapter 23 in verse uh, 7, where the Bible says, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. So if you want to know, if you're having an identity crisis and you want to know what is shaping your identity, what is shaping your identity is what you think about the most or how you think about things the most or what has your attention. What has your attention will become your identity. And, and we know this, right? You let your teenager go hang out with a certain group of friends for, for a while. That becomes their reality. That becomes their environment. And then they come home and they become a different person. They start acting like their friends. Why? Because our reality and our environment eventually shapes who we become as a person. And we end up having an identity crisis. Saul was having an identity crisis. He was not the priest. He was not the prophet. He was not the pastor. He was the king. And there was some sort of mix up because he should have been doing what the king was supposed to do. But instead of doing what the king was supposed to do, he did somebody else's job. And he did what Samuel was supposed to do. It was weird. It's an identity crisis because when something gets our attention, it becomes our reality. Then it becomes our identity. And then we end up in a weird crisis. So your attention is dominated by work. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize you're a workaholic. Or you spend a lot of time on social media, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to take pot shots at social media, but you spend a lot of time on it and absorbs a lot of your life, and then one day somebody starts to say something about social media not being the greatest thing in the world, and you find yourself locked in in an argument with that person, and you wake up and you realize, I've become an evangelist for social media. Or you think self-deprecating thoughts. Over and over again, you think, I'm not going to get the job, or this isn't going to happen for me, or I'm not worth being in this relationship. And someday you look in the mirror and you realize, this has become my identity. If something has your attention, it has you. Let's take it a step further. So it becomes your reality. Once, once your reality is what it is for a period of time, and you begin to hang out, and it becomes your environment, then it becomes your identity. It shapes who you are, and you end up in an identity crisis. And then after that, it begins to shape your destiny. Check this out. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Guard your heart above all else. Basically, it means 
of everything that you're going to be careful about, and we're going to be careful in life about a lot of things, of everything that you're going to be careful about, be careful most about your heart, for it determines the course of your life. The course of your life is your destiny. It's the outcome. It's what you end up being able to accomplish. It's the product of your life. And, and, and what the Bible is saying is guard your heart. Guard, and, and in, in this case, we're talking about our, our, our emotions, our logic, and our ability to connect spiritually with God. That part of us that is the real us, not, not our physical body, but our soul, our, 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 our spirit, the, in, the internal us. God is saying guard that part of yourself and be careful what you think because it will shape the outcome of your life. It'll shape your destiny. What a powerful thought that where I'm going is the product of what I'm thinking. I'll say that again. Where I'm going is the product of what I'm thinking. Why do we post a guard on something? The Bible says guard your heart. Guard your heart because it determines the course of your life. Why do we post a guard on on something? We post a guard because we want to keep something in or we want to keep something out. I mean, by definition, the Bible's telling us there are some things you want in your mind and there are some things you don't want. And, and our culture tends to have a different approach. We tend to swing the doors wide open of our mind and we say, I'll just take whatever in. And, and that doesn't mean that I, I like it, but I'll take whatever in and, and thoughts can come in and out and I'll just let it wash over me because we have so much information in our culture. We're living in the information age. I read a piece of, data, of, of research. I really wanted to find a newer piece of research, but there's a piece of research from 2007 that said the average person explored the equivalent amount of data that they would find in 174 full newspapers each day. In 2007, you would go through the amount of information, the amount of information that would be presented to you in one form or another is the same amount that you would read if you went through 147 full newspapers each day. And my hunch is that since 2007, the number has gone up. And, and we figure, well, we'll swing wide the doors open and we'll just take in whatever comes in and we'll, we'll process it and we'll figure out you know, what's good and what's bad. And we think, well, it really won't affect me. We've got this cultural idea that we have to give something our approval for it to impact us. When information comes in, we have to approve of it for it to change us. But the Bible says you don't have to give it your approval. You just have to give it your attention. Because what has your attention has you. We turn on the TV, we log on to our social media feed, we listen to a friend who tends to gossip, and with no idea what we're getting ready to hear, we just fling the doors open, I'll take it in. Let me ask you a question, what has your attention? As I said earlier, I, I really am not intentionally trying to pick on social media, but there are two studies, I read this last week, very interesting studies, one of them said that because of all of the crime reports and disaster reports, uh, and negative news that's on social media. Some people who tend to read these reports a lot have eventually started to show some symptoms of, that, that look a lot like PTSD. It, be, it, it becomes traumatic. And the, the, uh, the writers of the study said there was a time when people would read their local newspaper and they would see negative news stories, sure, but they would be ones that applied to them in their community. And then there might be a couple national stories, but, but, but there weren't a ton. They would only be ones that really the, 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 the editors of the paper thought really kind of applied to everybody nationally. But now because we have this new, new invention in social media, we see crime stories and disaster stories from everywhere. And we're inundated with them and they pop up on our feet over and over and over again. And the, the authors of the study said perhaps we're we're not built to just digest over and over again all of this negative news because it eventually becomes traumatic for us. 
And then in the, in the flip, another study said that because people tend to post positive things about their life on Facebook, so they bought a new car, they bought a new house, their kids got a trophy in gymnastics, whatever, and they post it, and then we look at it, and all we see is the good. They don't post the bad stuff in their life, or hopefully they don't post a lot of the bad stuff in their life, but we see all these wonderful things, and we think, well, my life's not that great, you know? My life's a mix of good and bad, and it seems like everything that they've got going on is good. And this study said that people are actually beginning to show depression-like symptoms, from that. It's like we swing the doors wide open and we're like, I, I'm not going to be affected by it. You know, I'll pay attention to it, but if I don't approve of it, it won't impact me. But it, the Bible tells us, yes, it actually will impact you. Here, that, that was number one. He, he left his mind unguarded. Here's number two. Uh, he let a destructive thought take control. See, here's what happens. When we do not guard the door to our heart and we're not careful about what we let get in, negative thoughts begin to creep in. And the way that happens is, you think, think about this. We've got this thought stream. All of us have this thought stream, or at least this is the way I like to picture it. And all little thoughts that bubble up into our brain are in this little stream, and they kind of, they kind of flow down. And we, and we have some good thoughts, and we have some bad thoughts, and we have some weird thoughts, and we're like, oh, that was a weird thought. That was a brain hiccup. And we have you know, just some different things going down, and we think, okay, well, I'm going to... And your greatest asset... And getting to your destiny is your ability that God gave you to pick and choose thoughts out of the thought stream. Yes, I want to think about that. No, I don't want to think about that. Yes, that's a good thought to attend to. No, that's not a good thought. Literally, what God has given you is the ability to decide of the thoughts that, that go down your stream, which ones are you going to rent mental space to? But then when we don't put a guard at the door and we don't guard our hearts, what happens is the well gets poisoned. And instead of it being a normal thought stream, it becomes inundated with negative and bad things so that it's so difficult then for us to know what do we pick out? What do we pay attention to? What should we rent mental space to? And before we know it, those negative thoughts have crept in, they've rented space in our minds, and now they're taking control. That's exactly what happened with Saul. He wasn't paying attention to what he should have been paying attention to, and his thought stream got poisoned, and a negative thought got through, and it took control. Look at what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 12. He says, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. He said, I felt pressured. I had, you know, Samuel, you don't understand, I had so much going on. I mean, I had the guys talking behind my back, and I had, you know, major concern for my, for, you know, I mean, there's just so, so much pressure with all these guys assembled ready to attack us. And I just, I felt compelled. Remember in week one we said your R factor is the amount of stress or difficulty or challenge that you can take before you get pushed from the good version of you to the bad version of you. But I don't know if you can identify with this. Usually if I get pushed into the bad version of me, I felt compelled to do it. I felt like I had a good reason to make a bad choice. Uh, you know, Saul, Saul gets that what he did wasn't ideal. It was a compromise. He gets that. And yet he feels like he had a good reason. He was compelled. He was pressured. And that's what negative thoughts do. When they make it past the guard, they get rented mental space, and eventually they begin to pressure us to do things that we shouldn't do. And so he said, you know, man, I, I just... I know I shouldn't have done it, but it was the, it was the pressure. It was the, it, was, it was the tension. He knew what he was doing was wrong. By the way, this isn't the only time he's going to be compelled by a negative thought to do something bad. Did you know that when you let a negative thought rent mental space in your brain, it can actually ruin a beautiful experience? Later on, the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. Famously, they're fighting the Philistines and a giant comes out from the Philistine ranks. Goliath, he comes out and he's taunting the people of Israel. 
trying to, trying to set up a, a man-on-man battle that will just kind of simplify the war and allow them to take over the Israelites as slaves. And nobody will fight him, not even Saul, who, remember, is the tallest person in the Israelite group. Nobody will go out and face him. And so this little 10- or 11-year-old kid named David goes out, chooses to fight the giant, uses a slingshot, throws a stone in the direction of, of the giant's head. The giant falls. David goes, cuts his head off, and they chase the Philistines away. So imagine this, this raucous, this raucous merriment, this, this massive celebration that's happening on the way home. It was, a, it was a beautiful thing. The Israelites can go home in peace, and the Philistines are scared of them now. They can go home, and they can just live their lives. They're not in the middle of the battle anymore, and they're not as scared like they've been for days and days and days. And they're on their way home, and everybody's having a good time, and Saul's pointing to David, and he's like, I don't know who that kid is, but he's sticking with us. And, and they're having this great old time until some women start to write a song that they sing on the way home back to Israel. And the lady's saying, Saul has killed his thousands, and he's like, hallelujah, sing another verse of that song. I like that. And then they sing verse 2 where they say, David has killed his ten thousands. And he says, say what? And immediately a negative thought creeps in and takes control. And he says, that kid's going to try to take the kingdom away from me. I mean, within a short period of time, we're going to see him throwing a spear at David, trying to impale David against the wall. Absolutely a bad decision. But Saul's life was like this. He would get into a bad way of thinking, a negative thought would take control, and then he would do something stupid. And that was the third thing. So if you're taking notes, the third thing is finally he made a compromise that cost him a piece of his future. He made a compromise that cost him a piece of his future. This would be Saul's pattern in his life. Eventually, by the way, he'll die on the battlefield, and sometime later David would become the king, but He'll die on the battlefield, ironically enough, fighting the Philistines. And I, if you'll forgive me the, the anachronism, I feel like on Saul's tombstone could have been the epitaph, tremendous potential, tremendous disappointment. And that's what I don't want for me. I, I, I want to live out my potential. And I told you the goal here was to reverse engineer what went wrong. So that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to give you a couple of ideas of what you can do to keep this from happening to you, and then we'll be done for the day, okay? Here's the first one. The Bible says to guard our hearts, so the first thing we need to do is to develop a grid for what deserves your attention. If you're going to guard your heart, you're going to need to know what deserves to come in and what needs to, st- to stay out. The Apostle Paul gave us a grid in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. He said, fix your thoughts, so calibrate your thinking or your attention on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. I don't have time to do this, but we're going to do it anyway. I want to give you some definition of terms here. So I went to the Greek word behind each one of those uh, descriptors that Paul just gave us to kind of flesh it out a little bit. So when, when, when Paul says, think about things that are true, the idea here is the courtroom definition of truth. Think about things that are the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? Well, that's going to make it difficult for our social media feeds, but, but still. The, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The honorable means ethical or fair or right for everybody. Uh, right means acceptable, the right thing to do, the legal thing. Pure means spotless or immaculate, right? So this is a, this is a real challenge for me personally because a lot of things get my attention that I think are not that bad. Well, it's not that bad, you know. But the Bible is saying, no, you need to pay attention to things that are spotless. You need to pay attention to things that are immaculate. And then lovely means pleasant, something that actually is enjoyable to think about. And then admirable means deserving of a good reputation. Is somebody who is a God follower that you respect, if they knew what you were thinking about, would they think it was a good thing? 
Why is it important to have the grid? Because what has your attention has you. But what happens when a negative thought gets through? I mean, what happens when something manages to, to almost make it into your, to renting your mental space? What about that? Well, then, then Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Look at the two verbs there. We take captive those thoughts, and then we make them obedient to Christ. We, we tweak those thoughts. We conform them. We make them fit with what God has told us about ourselves and about the world. So when you have that angry thought or that unforgiving thought that tries to sneak past the guard, the Bible says you catch it. You, you, you grab it. You, cap, you, you, you make it captive. And then you make it obedient to what you know about God. So you think about the fact that, well, God has forgiven me, so I forgive my debtors the way that God has forgiven me. And if there is a score to settle, the Bible says that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Or, or, or when you have that frightened thought and you're starting to stress out and you're starting to worry, the Bible says as that thought tries to make it into your mental space, you catch it. And you think to yourself, the Bible says that when I am afraid, I will trust in God. And the Bible says that when a sparrow falls from the sky, that God pays attention. And Jesus said, I'm worth more than many sparrows. Or maybe that financial stress thought tries to get through the gate. The Bible says you catch it. And you remember that the Bible says that my, 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 God, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, my father has, he knows what you need ahead of time. Or you have stresses about this world. You get on your Facebook and somebody says something about the fact that the world is, is going downhill and you, you, you catch that thought and you remember that Jesus said, yes, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And you captivate that thought and you tweak it and you morph it and you make it fit with what God has told you about himself and about the world. Can I tell you a little secret? This, uh, this series, I'm doing this series for, for, for me. I did a series last year, and I did the same thing. I wanted to preach the series that I needed to hear. And so this year, that's what I wanted to do. And I, I'm not, when I talk about making my boat less rockable, I'm not that person who gets super angry and flips out on people, or that sort of thing. Hopefully not much, anyway. I'm that person who worries, who has anxiety, who tends to, to go back and forth and wondering, you know, is God going to take care of this, or do I have to take care of this myself? I can relate to Saul, honestly. As much as I'm poking fun, I get it. I get it. There's an old... Sailor's phrase, it says, red sky at, at night, sailor's delight. Red sky at morning, sailor take warning. The idea is where you sail can impact whether you have smooth sailing or whether your ship gets rocked. And I have sailed directly into the middle of a lot of storms because I thought I knew better than God did. I thought I understood what I needed to do better than God understood what I needed to do. And so I sailed right into the middle of what was going to be some very choppy water. And so I get it. And so I was studying this passage, I was studying this topic, and I ran across these two verses. They're not even on the IMAGs because I, I came across them late in my preparation. But I decided to commit them to memory, and I want to share them with you if you're taking notes. The passage is Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, where the Bible says, You will keep in perfect peace. The idea of perfect peace there is balance. You, you, will, you will keep unrockable. You will keep anchored. You will keep steady all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Basically saying everyone who, has, who, who, who God has their attention, God will keep in perfect peace. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. The Lord God is our anchor. So what God is saying is, Jonathan, what has your attention has you. So you, do you trust me enough to give me your attention? That's all Saul. That's all the seven days. You wanna, there's no symbolism to the seven days here. I read all kinds of people talking about all the symbolism of what seven days meant. No, it was seven days where God was saying, Saul, do you trust me with your attention? 
Because what has your attention has you, and I want to give you your greatest destiny, just like God wants to give you your greatest destiny if you will give him your full attention. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you love us and that you've prepared a, a destiny for each of us, and we have potential because you've given it to us. Pray that you will help us to fulfill our full potential. Heads are still bowed. Eyes are still closed. We're in overtime, but if you're in this room and you say, you know what, Jonathan, as I was listening to you, my heart was moved that I don't have a relationship with God and I want to have one before I leave here. That is so awesome. Let me help you with that, okay? I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer, and you can follow along with this. You can say it silently in your heart to God, and he will hear you, and you will have a relationship with him. All right, here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know that I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, everybody look this way just for a moment. If you're in this room and you prayed that prayer with me just now, that is so awesome. Would you do us a favor? Would you take this talk to us, talk to us card that you got when you came in? Check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it back to guest services on your way out. They have a packet that they'd like to give you that has a DVD and a booklet. We'd just like to get you started on your new journey with God. Thank you so much for being here this week.